What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Only an Uncle Tom would do this shit. They just looking for somebody to sell out. Sell out? The only role they gonna let us do is a slave, a butler, or some street hood or something. Don't sell out, brother. Don't be a butler or a slave. Hey, all and welcome to the very first episode of Represent. It's a show that will explore film, TV, and online media from the perspectives of the underrepresented and misrepresented. That is the women, people of color, LGBTQ folks, and other groups who often get short shrift on screen. I'm Aisha Harris, a culture writer for Slate, and I'm excited to be your guide through this safe space of discussion, questioning, and perhaps the occasional venting about Hollywood and how it treats those of us who don't happen to be straight white dudes. What you just heard in that intro is a moment from the cult classic Hollywood Shuffle, directed, starring, and co-written by Robert Townsend, who also happens to be my very first guest. But first, let's dive into some of this week's pop culture news. And I'm happy to say that right now I am joined by one of my guest co-hosts and a friend of mine, Antonia Sarahito. <laughs> She's a producer on one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Another Round, uh, and I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm so happy that you were like my very first guest. Co-host. I know. I'm really overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, going to be very exciting. Um, one of the reasons that I started this podcast is because like as far back as I can remember, I loved pop culture. I love movies. I love TV. But I soon realized that it wasn't always reflecting me and I didn't often see myself in them or when I did see someone who looked like me. Sometimes it just felt embarrassing. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm trying to think of examples of of things. I think of like the Babysitters Club, which I was like obsessed with as a kid. I, I read every single book, and um, but they only had one black character, and she was a ballerina, which I was also a dancer too. But I didn't like the fact that she was the younger one. So like there were the 13 year olds, and then there were the senior sort of junior officers, and she was a junior officer, so she didn't seem as important. I know. I I relate to that and like I loved uh the American Girl series and I always felt bad Josefina wasn't my favorite. Uh I know same with me and Addie. Oh uh, yeah. Like I like <laughs> it was like I like loved Felicity. <laughs> I was like I don't know. I feel bad. I want to like Josefina and she seems chill, but I feel like I have more in common with Felicity. And it was like such a hard identity uh, issue. Yeah, I felt that way. Now that you mentioned American Girl, like I also felt that way about Addie. And I was that I guess that is sort of I shouldn't have been embarrassed about it. But like, why does she have to be a slave? And and my parents were very adamant about only having dolls that look like me. Like, can you think of any other examples? I remember the 
first time that I like knew that Latinos were represented in a bad way, <laughs> where I was like, this is not okay. And it was an episode of Even Stevens mm. where Ren is worried that her crush will be taken by Mandy Getchio Man Sanchez. <laughs> I vaguely remember this. I used to, I loved that show, the Disney Channel show. I was show obsessed with even With a, a young Shia LaBeouf. I also loved Ren. I like yeah. thought that I was her. I knew then, I was like, they always portray us as man stealers. And it's true, uh, like Latinas are always man stealers. Wow. I never thought, of, I never really thought about that way, but wow. Yeah. That's, that's real. Wow. <laughs> so what better way to kick off the first episode of this podcast than to talk about a a movie that I think has uh, I think we can all agree has 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 a, has a lot of hope writing on it from some people and a lot of disdain from from others. It's the new Ghostbusters, which is famously known as the all female Ghostbusters, for better or worse. At the time we're recording this right now, uh, the movie hasn't dropped quite yet. It's dropping this coming weekend, but. Box office predictions are relatively low compared to what the budget was. I think the budget was supposedly like around 150 million and it's projected to make about 40 million, uh, which, you know, and for a for a lot of movies, 40 million would be a great opening weekend. But when you have a budget like that, obviously, that's not yeah. uh, ideal. And so you, Antonia, had not seen the original although no. you did watch it like what the day before we went to go see yeah like two days before i watched the original what did you think because having that back-to-back and having never been like, actually exposed to the original ghostbusters you've had you have a very different experience i think from what a lot of people might have going to see it yeah i mean i don't know it feels dated if you watch it the original i'm sure that i'm gonna get tons of hate for saying that but like the, the special effects are wonky and like but but that's not even why it feels dated it just feels the jokes are a reference to another time that mm-hmm. I don't really get. I don't know. I was like kind of bored watching it, which I feel kind of bad about. But I also, and this is kind of important, have a semi-hatred of ghosts. We never talked about this. <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah, I was not aware of this. <laughs> I feel like it's a great, if you're like a young kid who's really interested in like ghosts and the paranormal, it would be super fun. To be honest, I haven't seen the original in probably like at least five or six years. But do you remember liking it? So that's the thing is that when I the first time I saw it, I was in my 20s. I was like, okay, I mean, I guess I understand. Like Bill Murray's funny. Like Bill Murray is always funny. I feel like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I it, love him. Yeah, and but I I also I, I also came away with it. I was like, okay, that was nice. I don't love it. I don't even remember if I found it boring. But I definitely feel like it's it's a it's a product of its time. And I think if if I had seen it as an eight year old, I probably would love it more as an adult, but I didn't. So that's just the way it is. I almost think that that's why it's like a good movie, though, for a reboot is because so much time has passed. And when you do watch it, it feels a little stale. Like that is a a good candidate for something to be brought back. Right. And I've even talked to people who loved it as a kid and they go back and they're like, you know, it doesn't. I mean, the nostalgia is there, but it doesn't it, it's not as funny as we remember it being. I think it's safe to say that the people who have been claiming, oh, this is ruining this reboot is ruining my childhood, the common refrain, um, they are either haven't seen the movie since they were eight or they just like they still cling to it in this very um, irrational way and in an irrational way that then because it's an all female movie lends itself to misogyny and i mean there there are other i think there are other factors too like you have to consider that for years like they tried to get a third one made with the original cast and like 
for many reasons, it just didn't happen. So I think there's some resentment towards that, too. But yeah, I mean, so let's talk a little bit about for those who may not be completely up to speed. Basically, as soon as it was announced that Paul Feig was the one who was directing it, it was going to be an all-female cast. Even before the cast was announced, fanboys were up in arms and were very upset. And they thought, oh, this is being PC. Why would you do this? Like, don't mess with a classic. And so they took it. it, it, it I feel like it went beyond what we usually see with this sort of fanboy fan service that's very misogynistic and that they are they are now like they have been actively trying to make the movie fail like the when the Ghostbusters trailer premiered uh, earlier this year I think it became the most disliked trailer in history (laughs) there were like millions of dislikes because people were like legitimately were purposely downvoting the movie that's so silly it's (laughs) ridiculous I'm like that why but I guess (laughs) <laughs> yeah, why don't we talk about what we actually thought about the, the movie? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. So I'll ask you first what you thought about the movie, because um, you saw it back to back. So you saw it mm-hmm. the day after you watched the original. So how did you feel about it? I mean, I definitely enjoyed it more than the original. I thought it was really fun. I thought it was like goofy. I thought that the special effects were like amazing. I was genuinely scared at some point. You, I, I was sitting next to you in a theater and you, I think in the first moment at the beginning when... Um, what do you call him? The museum uh, tour guide. Tour guide. Yeah, <laughs> he like he, he he becomes attacked by ghosts, and you let out a very loud like <laughs> ah. There, was, there was a jump scare. I wasn't expecting it <laughs> at all, but it was it was like it was super. I actually th- I think it kind of lost steam for me. That's what I thought. I thought it started super strong. Mm-hmm. I think that Kristen Wiig is like one of the funniest people ever, mm-hmm. and her and Melissa McCarthy have an amazing rapport, and I think you felt it from the beginning. And then I think that maybe the special effects kind of, like, took over their comedy stuff. Yeah. That being said, though, like, I thought it was really solid. Like, I had a lot of fun. I thought that, what's his face? Chris uh, Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth was great <laughs> in it. I thought it was a really, like, it was a really good time. And it was, like, l- light and fluffy and a great summer movie. Am I going to see it a million times? No. Yeah. Is it? As good as Bridesmaids? No. Definitely not. No, no, no. But it was good. Yeah. Like, one of the things that I saw a lot of reviewers mention, or, like, a thing that I noticed was that for some people, a lot of times the men, they felt as if that the the fact that they were all women and that it was an all-female cast, they felt like the movie didn't play up into the fact that they were all women. Like, they felt like it it felt too subtle at times. Like, there was nothing overtly subversive about their casting. Like, girls rule. Like, like them literally saying, like, girls rule or something Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the feeling I got. And I don't know if I... Or I don't know if if that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I kind of appreciate that they... I mean, aside from there's a moment where they're reading internet comments and they like directly respond to the hate that the, that the movie itself has gotten. And it's like one of the comments they read aloud is like, ain't no bitches going to hunt no ghosts, um, which I thought was really funny. Yeah. Um, so there's stuff like that. But like I, I didn't find fault with it myself. The fact that they don't like it's not rah rah. I appreciated the elements of like the fact that it does like pretty much basically pass the Bechdel, the Bechdel test um, and that it's they're at the center of the film is really Melissa McCarthy and, um, Kristen Wiig's character's friendship. Yeah. I It didn't bother me, and I didn't leave the theater being like, man, this was such a missed opportunity. Also because, and I think this is important, I don't think that it's this movie's job to, like, radically change Hollywood. I think it's really tricky because I think there was so much pressure put on it. And so I th- much, yeah. So much pressure put on it, and it's just like... 
they don't need to solve every problem. They just need to make a fun movie, which is what they did. And I mean, I think this whole question of doing reboots and changing the casting is really interesting. And I don't think it's a bad thing at all. In fact, I think the fact that four women got paid, you know, Hollywood blockbuster salaries to do their job is amazing. Hopefully they did. Yeah. Actually, I have no idea. But I'm ho- I mean, I'm assuming that it's like a high paying, big budget film that like four women are the head of. I think that's great. Mm hmm. I don't think any of this is revolutionary, you know? Yeah. I don't think that, like, this—to me, taking an idea that was, like, a very bro thing—I mean, you watch the 80s thing, and it's, like, four dudes, like, you know. Yeah. And, like, Bill Murray's character is really bro-y in it. it Bill Murray is just really bro Yeah, he's really bro <laughs> But, like, normally he's, like, a little bit—he's not as, like, sweet. I always, like, feel like I watch Bill Murray, and I'm always, like, there's this, like, adorable core. <laughs> yeah. And it's, like— still there in in Ghostbusters but like he like checks out the girl and like there's like a whole there's like a lot more like bro stuff going on Mm -hmm. to take that movie and then put women in it is like still a man's idea that now is being adapted right and I think a radical thing would be like a blockbuster written by women that's a woman's idea that like you know that to me is like truly revolutionary but do I think this is like a positive thing yeah I also feel like to to that point we have Paul Feig has has so far been able to create those sort of independent granted it's still Paul Feig and he also I think his co-writer on Ghostbusters is Kate Dippold Katie Dippold and she also wrote The Heat which also starred um, Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock and I didn't really like The Heat that much and I think maybe I don't know if that the fact that they teamed up again it just like The Heat felt to me like it could be a lot funnier I didn't like Spy Oh, see, I really like Spy. You like Spy? I did. So many people like Spy, and I, I hated Spy. I loved Spy. What's wrong with Spy? What didn't you know. like about I Spy? I remember just, like, not thinking it was funny. And I love Melissa McCarthy. Mm. And so I was, like, really bummed about Spy. Interesting. Spy was one of my favorite movies from last year. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't even <laughs> like it. How did you feel about... Well, you loved, you loved Bridesmaids. Loved Bridesmaids. Okay. So... I mean, that Bridesmaids and also Spy and also even The Heat are like movies, just to bring it back to what we were talking about originally, is that those are movies that were like engineered for women and have the potential. I think they're actually planning to do a second The Heat movie, which, I mean, I'm not that excited about because it wasn't my favorite movie. But yay. But that's the thing is that I I would love to see more of that, more women's movies that get franchise that are turned into franchises, even though... One part of me is like, we don't need more franchises, but like, I think we should all have an equal opportunity to do like, you know, not very good movies that make tons of money. And it's true that I guess those movies didn't have as much. I mean, the very fact that you're doing a reboot of like a classically dude related film is going to warrant more criticism because, you know, I don't think a lot of people were like out there on the streets being like, screw the heat. (laughs) Don't go see the heat. Right. I'm very sad to hear that more people aren't going to go see it. I think that's the saddest part. It's like you can have haters on the Internet, but the fact that people aren't supporting it with their dollars is like a real bummer. Now, would you encourage because like there's this common there's this especially among people who like aren't white, straight white guys. Like there's this common belief that like or this pressure, I think, to whenever there is a movie that's like for us or by us or like about us to like want to like encourage people to see it, even if it's not the best movie. If you had liked the movie a little bit less would you still encourage people to go see it? Just because of... Yeah, just to get the support. No. 
No. And I also, like, even if this movie was, like, a monstrous failure, like, if I had gone to go see it and I was like, this is total crap, I would hope that that doesn't mean that some Hollywood executive isn't going to be, like, the next female-led comedy. Screw it. And that's the hard part. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's like, you don't have a situation. For instance, Johnny Depp was in that, like, utter trash movie where he played a Native American. What was it? <sighs> um... Lone Ranger. Okay, that crap, right? That was so bad. <laughs> so terrible. And, like, the dude is still in, <laughs> in movies and, like, is still, like... I mean, Johnny Depp's actually in a very particular situation right now. But yes. the other guy, the really boring guy that he co-starred with, that blonde man. Oh, Army... Well, Army Hammer. They tried to make him happen, but that didn't... But the thing is, yeah. even after that monster of a failure, he still had two other giant movies. And then finally America was like, no, this guy is boring. Stop showing us him. yeah. And I feel like that's the thing. It's like Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy have shown time and time again that they are successful, that people do want to go see them in the theaters. Just because Ghostbusters isn't the best movie of all time doesn't mean that they shouldn't have four more movies after this lined up. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a very particular movie, and I think that Kristen Wiig and Michelle, um, Melissa McCarthy are going to be fine. I like. I think if, if they had chosen, um, le- like less famous people at this at the at, or people in a different stage of their careers i think we would have more cause to worry but i think they'll be fine what do you think about leslie jones's performance i think her performance in the movie lived up to unfortunately what the fears were when that whole controversy happened earlier this year where it was discovered that <clears throat> her character is not a scientist she's um a mta worker who knows the city really well and like uses her like her skills to to help the Ghostbusters. I feel like she got the least to do out of all of them. And I thought she was funny because I think she's funny. I think she was actually funnier here than she is. She she often is in SNL. But yeah, I, I was disappointed. I I I I wish I honestly just wish she could have been a scientist. Yeah. I don't understand why why she she couldn't have been a scientist too. Well, I I feel like we could talk about this so much more, but I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, I think we both liked Ghostbusters and would recommend that folks see it and encourage them not to be discouraged by their childhoods being ruined. <laughs> yeah, and I don't have to think about ghosts for a little bit longer, so that's good. Yes. <laughs> our inaugural uh, part of this the show. This will be the f- very first time that we do this, obviously, because this is the first episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to uh, ask you and and ask of myself, uh, this week in representation, plus or delta, what's uh, one thing this week that you felt was like a really great moment or a moment where you felt represented in a way? And then for a delta, what might have been, you know, what do we need to work on? What was like shameful? What was irritating for you? Uh, how do you feel about it? So someone you and I both know is Tiffany Vasquez. And I actually think <laughs> that the fact that she's the newest host on Turner Classic Movies is like the best thing that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I'm very she's a friend of mine from from grad school at NYU. Um, and she I'm so proud of her. Uh, she'll also be one of my guest co-hosts on the show on a future episode, which I'm excited about. So you guys will get to meet her as well. Yeah, she's I uh, interviewed her the other day, and it was really cool because one of the things that we talked about— So Turner Classic Movies, for those who don't don't know and who are not total nerds— Or not cool. (laughs) Is um, 
this channel where they show all classic movies, and they're always presented for a long time. They were always presented by this man, Robert um, Robert Osborne. Robert Osborne, and he still are. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. And then they added a new host, Ben Mankiewicz. And I remember thinking in high school, I'm going to be the next host <laughs> because I was like, they're going to need a woman of color. This is ridiculous. I love Turner Classic Movies. We're done here. And so my first reaction to her being announced as the new host was actually full dread. I was like, they're not going to hire both of us. I'm totally screwed. But if it's not me, I'm glad it's her. <laughs> hey, you never know. Yeah, maybe. There should be room for more than one. <laughs> yeah. So that's my plus. My Delta, I'm a huge J-Lo fan. Ever since she came on the scene, I felt very, like, represented by her. I bought J-Lo jeans at Macy's when I was in Wait, in the, the kind with the butt pad? Yes! Oh, my God. <laughs> no, no, no butt pad, but no pockets. Oh, she sold some that had, like, actual, like, butt. Like, I worked in retail in high school, aside, aside here. But, like, she, they had, like, actual, like, cushioning in the butt. No. Yeah, I was like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, continue. No, I bought I bought none. I don't need any padding, Aisha. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> but her jeans were like the first jeans that actually fit me. Her and Lin-Manuel Miranda paired up recently after uh, the Pulse shootings to create this song. And that was obviously a very lovely thing that they did. And I think it's really important to recognize that a lot of the people that died that night were Puerto Rican and Latino in general. But she's been tweeting a lot about it on on Twitter, and one of her tweets said, hashtag all lives matter. Oh, I saw that. Then she deleted it really quickly. Yeah, but all of us Uh. were like, no. I mean, who knows if she actually wrote it? I think that's important to know. True. (laughs) Maybe I'm giving her too much leeway. But I think that this has been a really hard time. You know, Black Lives Matter is such an important thing that's happening right now, and I think that all people who have a cause should support it, period. And so when we have our girl J-Lo saying things like that, we're all like, no, come on, we're all trying so hard. Like, <laughs> don't do this for us. So that would be my delta. Those are those are solid. What are yours? <clears throat> my plus for this week would be this week the um, a bunch of different start like jumping off the Black Lives Matter, um, a bunch of different huge stars, um, including Beyonce, Rihanna, Bono, um, <laughs> Alicia Keys. They all did this um, very powerful uh, video in which they're saying um, they they list the twenty three. It's I think they paired with Mike and they and, and they. Um, listed the 23 ways that you can die by be, like while being black. And so you know, they'll pop up on the screen for a second and Beyonce will say something like, I, I don't remember what hers was exactly, but each one is like broken taillight, going to your bachelor party, uh, selling loose cigarettes, selling CDs, like all of these like things that we know black people have been killed murdered for um for for these crimes that like aren't really crimes and Mm -hmm. and there's no reason that should have happened it's a really powerful video and i feel like it's it shows the sort of tipping point we're at now where like when someone like beyonce is is saying is is actually saying these things like i think this is the first time at least this is the first time i've seen her actually say something like we've seen her like perform it and in in lemonade and do the performance at the super bowl and she she leaves these like long messages on her instagram but like we never like hear it from her mouth mm-hmm. <laughs> so just to like see that for that like very short moment was like powerful to me and, and to see all these different artists i mean it's one step it's not the last step obviously but i think it's Great that more people are getting behind this. And then my delta for this week is that it's not a huge delta, but I will just say really quickly that um, Paul Fee did an interview with the Daily Beast, uh, Jen Yamato, um, where he kind of hinted at 
the the fact that Kate McKinnon's character might be gay in the movie, but he implies that like the studio is sort of sort of like won't like con- like let him confirm or he like the studio wouldn't let him make it explicit in the movie. Um, it's 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 a weird. He, he's not very he's very vague about it, so like it's hard to tell like if like is he being coy. But if it is the case that like the studio like was like very like we can't make this character explicitly gay or like it, even if he like Feig feels the need that he needs to like be coy about it, I think it's sad. It's like we still have these like hangups in 2016 in Hollywood. I mean, McKinnon is is openly gay. Yeah. Um, so what's the name of the show that she does with uh, with Aidy Bryant? Oh, fat, uh, Dyke and Fats, <laughs> which is like I just rewatched that yesterday actually, and I was like, this is so great it's from so the good. the SNL skit from like a couple of years ago. That's really great. It's like a spin on like 1970s cop shows, and and she's uh, she's Dyke, <laughs> Kate McKinnon is Dyke, and Aidy Ryan is Fats, and it's like really great. Definitely worth watching. One of the like truly subversive SNL skits that I can think of. So well, anyway. Thank you so much, Antonia, for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This has been so fun. Yeah, you'll be back at some point soon. And now my interview with Robert Townsend, who, in my opinion, is a criminally underappreciated filmmaker who's had an incredible decades-long career as an actor, comedian, writer, and director. And among many other things, he's directed Eddie Murphy's 1987 comedy film Raw, created and starred in the beloved Motown-inspired fictional biopic The Five Heartbeats, and appeared in movies like Norman Jewison's 1984 ensemble film A Soldier Story. But he's perhaps best known for writing, producing, starring, and directing Hollywood Shuffle, which is a biting satire of Hollywood's historic mistreatment of Black people that in many ways sadly remains just as relevant today as it did when it was first released in 1987. If you haven't seen Hollywood Shuffle yet, I highly recommend that you do. After listening to this episode, it stands alongside the great satires like Blazing Saddles, but it also has this great meaning behind it about empowering Black people to better their images on screen and also imploring Hollywood to do better about the roles that it creates for Black people. Our conversation took place a little over a month ago at the 20th annual American Black Film Festival, which is an event showcasing and promoting Black artistry. And Robert Townsend, he's been very proud to have been a part of it since the very beginning. Mr. Robert Townsend, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You've worked with everyone from Denzel to Halle Berry to Beyonce. And I'm just curious, what is the moment that you remember when you said, I want to be a filmmaker? Well, it was really uh, at an audition, and there was a director, a white director, trying to tell me how to be black. And it was like, no, 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 it's all wrong. You go to the Cadillac and you pimp slap her. Pep, 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 pep. You're a jive mofo. And I just remember walking out of that audition with my dignity, you know, like at a very low. And I was like going, this can't be my life. And at that moment, uh, there was a young comedian uh, starting out that we were talking about writing together. His name was Keenan Ivory Wayans. And he says, you know, Robert, we should do a movie about what we're going through. And that was the genesis that became Hollywood Shuffle. So it came out of not like, oh, I'm going to be a filmmaker. It came out of like, I can't play these pimps and runaway slaves and jive talking dudes in the pool hall for the rest of my life. I want to take charge of my destiny. And that's how I was born. 
All right. Now, did you ever find yourself before Hollywood Shuffle playing pimps? And because I know you got your start in, in Cooley High was the was your first on screen appearance. But uh, like, did you ever succumb to that? I, you know, I, I had auditioned for a lot of um, negative stuff. You know, I went to I had a lot of auditions for, you know, pimps and basketball players that couldn't read. uh the snitch in the pool hall, you know, it was like the usual, you know, like, dude, the dude you're looking for on the third floor, man, you know, and it's always like that same guy. And so I just found it funny. And so then uh, I decided to write about it, but I went on those auditions. I did. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny because in your, some of your st- earlier standup uh, com- and your standup shows, you kind of do those different voices like the british the british voices especially yes i i uh i was watching one of your clips uh i think it was rodney dangerfield's uh-huh. show and you came on and you started talking about your life in the ghetto but you used like the british accent no that that was one of my first routines because when i started out you know in the comedy clubs all the black comedians had the same act they would come out and go like how y'all doing tonight you know how the white people doing you know yeah i'm, I'm a brother i'm from the hood and they would talk like that and so i was like going well how do i stand out and you know and i my first act would be good evening hello how are you how are you guys doing i'm from the hood i'm from the ghetto my family was very very poor we were on welfare <laughs> i used to say to my mother mumsy please don't make me take the government cheese and so that was my first chunk and it took off because people were like you know wow he's he understands comedy and he's got these characters in his back pocket so that was kind of how i started yeah but who who were some of your influences when it came to to stand up comedy? Like, uh, of course, Richard Pryor. Um, there was a guy named Dick Sean. I I loved Billy Crystal as a stand up comedian. Mm-hmm. Uh, different people for different reasons, but and then I you know, like the the Danny Kay. I mean, these are a lot of older comedians, but they could sing, they could dance, they could act, they could do impressions. Yeah, and so that's those are the kind of comedians I loved. Were there any impressions that you tried and like tried whether in front of an audience or on your own and you were just like, this isn't, this isn't working? Um, whether I, obviously the British accent worked, but was there anything you, you, you did where you like, oh, I, that's not. No, not me. No. Yeah. I, 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 it always works. It always <laughs> <laughs> Humble. No, I mean, no, 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 I'm messing with you. Yeah. No, I mean, the thing that I would say is that uh, sometimes, you know, I mean, I think, you know, it's all about taking chances. Sometimes jokes work. Sometimes characters work. Sometimes characters don't. But I think if you trust your instincts, you know, and I always trust my instincts, like, oh, this will work here. But, you know, sometimes because you're going into the unknown, you never know. Mm. But I think real artists... They don't care if they go into the unknown. That's what that, that's what makes the journey of life so exciting. Right. Let's talk a little bit about Hollywood Shuffle. I mean, it's one of those movies that I think, especially if you are interested in black film, everyone knows it. It's it's iconic. It's legendary. Um, and famously, you basically maxed out your entire bank account to yes. to, to help fund it, and and was kind of at the skin of your teeth. But somehow, you were able to make this film. Uh, and make it look like you spent so much money on it. There's so many different genres being played with. You have the black and white. You have these costumes, these dream sequences. Like, I I don't know. I'm just in awe of, of the fact that you're able to do that. Well, you know, l- l- let me say this. Because I studied at Second City in Chicago and I have an improv background, the, the first thing I learned about improv was that you create the illusion, you know. So it's not so much about... Uh, like 
you could pretend to be on a spaceship, but it's the energy in your voice and your body so that if you're like captain on the uh, the starboard, uh, we've got Omega-5 coming in, you know, it's an energy. And so I learned that from improv. And and once you made the film, how did you distribute it in terms of like, did you have to kind of shop it around? Because well, obviously that costs a lot of money too to to do that. Well, you know, back then there weren't that many uh, movies coming out with people of color. So Spike had done She's Got to Have It on the right. East Coast. And then on the West Coast, you know, Keenan and I were finishing um, what would be Hollywood Shuffle. And um, there were a few independent film companies and we showed it to the Samuel Goldwyn Company and they love the movie. They got it. They said, well, there's something about this that's really funny because Sam Goldwyn Jr., who bought the film, you know, uh, older white gentleman, you know, and so he didn't know Jerry Curl and all that stuff, but he was smart enough to say, ooh, that thing with the Jerry Curl. I don't know what a Jerry Curl is, but that's going to be funny. I can tell there's something funny about that. Right. And he just went on his instincts and... uh Hollywood Shuffle took me around the world a couple of times, you know, and for an investment of a hundred thousand, you know, since that time, it's it's made close to ten million. Yeah. So not bad investment. What was the response uh, like around the world in terms of like how is it different in each country, or was it different at all in terms? Well, of- it opened up a conversation about images of people of color mm. because you know I remember being in France and a journalist was like, "Mr. Thousand, I'm so confused by your movie. You know, you say you don't want to play the pimp, the mugger, the jive ass, but that's all we see of the black actor." So wow. then I was like, "Wow, images are powerful. They can travel around the world." And so I think for me. Though it was my first film, it really gave me an education like none other in terms of how important images are. And I think when you look at my body of work and all the things I've done, um, I've stayed on course uh, with my mission to uplift people of color. That's why I exist. Mm. Everything is about that because I know that images... If I get on an elevator and I see a, um, a white woman grab her purse... And, you know, there's fear there. It is because of images that have been planted in her head, you know, or we could be in a restaurant and a baby is, sees me and I play with the baby and then the parents are uptight and the baby's like, oh, God, God, God. the baby's having a good time and I'm having a good time with the baby. The baby doesn't know prejudice. It's taught. And then one of the tools that teaches prejudice is film and television. Those are the biggest teachers. Yeah. I mean, uh- Thank you, D.W. Griffith, for that, uh, Birth of a Nation, because <laughs> I, I feel like that that's definitely one of the earliest examples of, of, of what you, what we see today in terms of what we expect black people to That and to oxygen. Like. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that and just, you know, America being America. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, but no, but... Um, I mean, was there was there any sort of did you feel any because, you know, we have Oscars so white now and we have right. this this talk about making things better. But was there any conversation then when Hollywood did you pierce your nose? Young lady, when, when this podcast <laughs> is over with, you're going back to high school and get that. And anyway, go, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just looking at her. She's got a nose pier. This is too hip for Slate. This is just too damn hip. The hell. Apparently, according to Robert Townsend, I look like I'm in high school. <laughs> 
I promise you, I am not in high school. I'm old enough to be here. <laughs> okay, just making sure. <laughs> um, yes, I pierced my nose. Just I, I ran out while you're answering the question. Uh, but yeah, like, was there a conversation uh, similar to what we have now with Oscar So White after Hollywood Shuffle came out? We're 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 papers writing about oh we need to make things better we're hollywood studios saying oh we're going to try and do better well you know you know what what was happening was that there was a lot of discussion with uh people in hollywood because they go does that really happen you know are we being offensive you know really? these scripts don't you know cuz sometimes if no one speaks up and says we don't talk like this. This script, it takes a person with some courage to speak up because you're on a set and if some director comes over and says, your first line is, say what, baby? Let me tell you something, Flapjack. You know, And if you're a, an actor, you go like, I just want the job, so I'm going to say what's on the page, no matter what if it makes sense or not. But at some point when Hollywood Shuffle started the discussion, people go, well, maybe we should have actors, you know, and we should have executives of color to make sure that the script is right or are we saying the right thing or is this image a stereotype and we need to fix it? And so I think it became a catalyst for conversation. All right. Do you feel like things have gotten better since then? Things have gotten a lot better. I mean, because when I look at television now, you know, I'm not saying that it is the best, but when you look at how to get away with murder, scandal, then you look at uh, all the different shows, you know, Rosewood. I mean, there's Black-ish. a lot of blackish. Yeah. There's a lot of different Im- images. So we're not in a box. If a kid is watching television, they don't just see a certain type of black person they can see you know you know a, a real scale of people and so i think that's good you know i think we have come a long way is there more work to be done yes yeah. you know are there more images you know to be you know to be created on the silver screen yes yeah i mean i re- <clears throat> i was reading uh an art or interview you did with the la times back in 1993 around the time when meteor man came out and you were talking about how, like, you specifically with that movie, and, and Meteor Man is, is is a movie where you play uh, Jefferson Reed. He's this uh, sort of mild-mannered teacher who, uh, while trying to escape some gang members, gets hit by a giant meteor and becomes a superhero. Yes. Um, and then is, like, racing to, to save uh, his community from all the gangs and the violence and the corrupt government. But with that, you were saying, I want to... I want to create a balance. I want to counter because right now we have just this all of these sort of a lot of, at the time negative images, and you wanted to create that balance. So it seems like you you believe that we have more of a balance now than we might have had twenty years ago in terms of like balancing out the the more like hood quote unquote hood or like negative stereotypes. Yeah, I think I think we we have we have uh, made up some ground. You know, it's just that now it's about quality. Because I think we have more content with people of color than ever on television, mm-hmm. you know. So at this time, there's more television series with uh, people of color in the leads 
Now it's going to be a conversation about quality, right? quality control, because a lot of the stuff, some of it's really good and some, a lot of it's really bad. And, you know, you, you never want to call out, you know, other people of color, you know, on black on black television crime or film crime <laughs> right. where you go like a black person created that, you know, a black person write, wrote that and directed that. Oh, my God, look what they're doing. But we don't do that even right. if it's even if it hurts us. Yeah. So I just think that, you know, there's a lot of good stuff, but I think there's a lot of bad stuff, too. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, uh-huh. what, what do you think of Empire? Because Empire is like probably the biggest one of the biggest shows on TV, save for like Game of Thrones. And that has obviously been the, the sort of there's been a huge conversation around diversity and people when they automatically think of the the good diversity on TV. Now they think of Empire. Like, what do you think of that as a show? Well, you know, here's the thing. I think it fills a void that doesn't exist on television. You know, I think one part of the audience loves the fact that there are these wealthy people of color that live in this world and, you know, by all standards have a life like none other. And then there's another side that, you know, it's ghetto fabulous. So then there's two different worlds. I think the show is doing amazing numbers because it lives in that world that we don't normally see. And so the fact that they dare to go there, you know, so there's an audience that goes like, oh, look at how she's dressed. Look at how she's talking. Oh, I'm cookie. Oh, hell yeah, girl, that's me. You know, and, um, you know, you got beautiful people on television dressed nice and some outrageous. And I think... There's nothing like it at, on television. So there's, it's a guilty pleasure for black, white, Latina, Latino, you know what I'm saying? So I think, um, that's what it speaks to, you know. Uh, I, I don't really get into commenting on other people's art, that's you know fair. what I mean? Because, you know, you know, it's not, it's not up to me to say, oh, I think, you know, there's an audience that has an appetite because we're still starving to see ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Sort of funny because it, it, Empire, in a way, reminds. It seems like the uh, a lot of people compare it to Dynasty, but on your HBO special, the bold, the black, the beautiful. The bold, the black, the beautiful. The bold, the black, and the beautiful. It, there's yeah. a lot. It does remind me of you know because one time I was watching, I was watching Empire, and I said, "There's so much drama going on yeah. that you go like." She doesn't know that I'll get rid of her soon as she leaves. <laughs> oh, my daddy thinks he's gonna run the empire. Watch what I do. You know, and it was that like is that a was very like, good that, that, uh, Jamal or Andre or whatever. You know, but it, but it's like <laughs> yeah. bold, the black, the beautiful. That's what we did when LL Cool J was coming to take over the empire. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about partners in crime and, and that sort of era because mm-hmm. you also introduced a lot of other completely uh, younger. Um, new comedians to mm-hmm. to the to the fold. Tommy Davidson was on the show. Right. Sinbad was on the show. Uh, Robin Harris, the legendary Robin Harris. Uh, Franklin Ajayi was on the show. Paul Mooney. Yeah, Damon Wayans, I think. Damon's young, first time. Young. Damon's yeah. first time because he was doing. Uh, he wrote this routine of true story. His kids were little, and Michael Jackson was so big, and the only thing that would make the kids go to bed was when he turned into Michael Jackson. He goes. <laughs> Pick up your clothes, put them away. <laughs> you know, and he does this whole thing of being Michael Jackson. And uh, he didn't want to do it. And we got into a big fight during the second show. And I said, do the Michael Jackson thing. And he goes, man, they're going to think I'm soft. You know, I got to, I don't want to talk about my family. I said, man, that's what's going to make, you know, you, that's going to be special for you, your family. And so the second show, I just remember we went back and forth and he did it and he killed. <laughs> and he killed. He looked at me, he was like, Rob, you're right, you know. But yeah, because that was one of his routines, talking about his kids, little Damon. Yeah. You know, he would do Michael Jackson. I mean, look at that, like, and then 
yeah, like 15, 20 years later, he had My Wife and Kids, which is mm-hmm. basically a family, very family-friendly show. Um, and and what was it like collaborating with everyone on that? Uh, how many specials were there? Was it just uh, one or were there several? There were four specials on HBO, and then there were 10 episodes of Towns and Television on Fox. Right, right. And and how did that come about? Was That was around the, the same period. The, the original on HBO were around the same period as uh, Raw and Hollywood Shuffle, correct? Right. Okay. Well, I was already doing stand-up, and then they asked me if I wanted to do a special after Hollywood Shuffle. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of Carol Burnett and all those kind of, you know, variety shows, Laugh-In and all of that. And uh, I said, I want to do a, a variety show. And I want to have musical guests, and I want to have comedians, and I want to do film clips. And um, they were like, you know, I said, I, and I, you know, at that time, I was just renegade, renegade, because I was just like, I, I know what the budget is. I'll take scale. I just want to do my vision. And it was one of the highest rated shows on HBO at the time because it was like, wow, all this is packed into an hour special. And I had uh, Bobby Brown on one episode and Howard Hewitt and just, you know, everybody. And then the comedy was all different. Yeah. And Keenan wrote that. Did he co-write that with you yeah, as uh-huh. well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it like working with him? Like, Because you worked on that with him, Hollywood Shuffle, um, also the Five Heartbeats a yes. few, few years later. Like, what was what was your like, rapport y- like? You know, Keenan and I, uh, um, it's interesting. We have a very unique writing style because <laughs> Keenan would always lay on the floor shaking his foot. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have the legal pad. I start writing the legal pad. And just... Um, you know, it's just kind of a beautiful chemistry. We just we just click, you know. And so in terms of writing, the best joke always wins. But, you know, the style, um, I'm more by the book and Keenan's more crazy, crazy. But mm-hmm. I'm just as crazy. But mine, you know, I got to, you know, say, okay, because I'm directing it. Okay, how do we really do that? So it's just, you know, but it's kind of like sometimes we will play all the parts. You know, so it all varies different. Yeah. Between that and also the Partners in Crime, that Partners in Crime especially feels sort of like a precursor to In Living Color um, in a way because a lot of those same actors showed up on, on In Living Color. Right, right, right. Um, but were you ever involved with In Living no, Color? No, 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 no. See, I was trying to get the five heartbeats made. Okay. I, no one wanted the five heartbeats. And so Keenan and I finished the five heartbeats. And uh, the script, and nobody wanted to make it. And I was like a pit bull. I'm going to get this movie made. I know it's going to be great. I know it's going to be special. And everybody said no to me. So while I was lost in a Five Heartbeats Odyssey for three years, Keenan was like, Rob, I got to make some money. And then he says, you know, I'm going to pitch and create my own stuff, you know, while, you know, because he knew I was trying, but he says, I can't wait. And then that's when he pitched. in Living Color to Fox. Okay. And then he came over, you know, to the house and said, hey, I sold this show to Fox. And I was like, man, good luck with it. I'm still going to get this five heartbeats made. And I just couldn't, I couldn't, I would feel like a failure if I, if I gave up on it. So I just, I was like, do it, do it. I'm going to stay over here. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was surprised because I was looking to see, I was like, I don't remember seeing him on there. And I'm surprised that you hadn't been involved. And then I was like, I wonder if anything like no, 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 no. No, you yeah. know the thing. The thing. The thing for me with Keenan was um, 
once he wanted to do, you know, his show, it was his show. And I wasn't like, well, man, let me tell you, because I was like, I just want to do movies. I was like, I want to do this movie and that movie and this movie. And then I started to get my Hollywood lessons where, you know, you can't move at your own pace sometimes. And um only thing I wanted to do was five heartbeats. I love the script that much. And so while he was doing that, I was still looking for money and trying to figure it out. Yeah. And this year actually marks the 25th anniversary of the yes. Five Heartbeats. Yes. Um, and you're currently working on a documentary about it? I'm working it? on a documentary. It's been a year and a half. And uh, it's it's absolutely amazing. Mm. It's I'm really proud of it. It's not just because I did it, but it's like um, the journey to tell the story of this singing group and where it took me, you know, like I said, that nobody wanted it. And then eventually people consider it, you know, a classic now. Yeah. And so, you know, part of the the documentary is when I was a kid and it's, it's just it's just my journey because it all started when the temptations broke up and I was a little kid. And I was like, what happened? And so that's kind of how the, the documentary begins. What sort of what were some of the difficulties in trying to get the film made was it just trying to find financing or funding or like because it's a very it's a movie that is very ambitious i feel like it's not your typical just straightforward biopic like it covers so many different genres or so Mm. many different um decades right it goes from the the 60s to the present or the present then the 90s um and then it also covers like funk a little bit of funk and like some of the hip-hop so was that sort of and it's a musical so musicals are already also very difficult to make so what made like what else made it difficult i think but i think you know i think that was some of the main stuff i mean when you think this five heartbeats was my second movie I had never, I had only directed one thing that was Hollywood Shuffle and that was done with a credit card. And then I go from $100,000 to almost $9 million. And uh, I have a huge vision, you know, and then people go like, can you really do this? You know, and I go, it's going to be funny. It's going to be dramatic. And I'm going to incorporate the music here. And then while they're on stage there, you know, Big Red's going to be in the audience and then he's going to kiss the girl. She's going to faint and then he's going to jump off and then choir boy hits the high note. And when I wrote it, people were like, how the hell? But I mean, we all have unique skill sets and God's given me, you know, you know, a gift to make movies. And so when uh, I finally got the green light, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And then as I started to put the movie together, people were like, wow, he really is a director. He really does get it. And, you know, the fact that now people make it an annual thing at Christmas or Thanksgiving to watch it, you know, I I know I wasn't wrong. But as a filmmaker, I I really understand what I how to make movies. I really do. What is your favorite song from the movie? Do you have one? No, I love it. You know, it's so funny because I'm working on the documentary now. Uh, it's just a lot of amazing performances and the songs, you know, they're all, you know, it's like, you know, you enjoy the journey, you know. And so because somebody could say, well, it's the song with you and the little sister or a heart is a house for love or we haven't, you know, what, you know, and I'm like, no, I, I, I'm a connoisseur. You know, I like it all, you know, like uh, Bird and the Midnight Falcons, baby, stop running. You know, I like all that stuff. Yeah. I think my favorite, I do have a favorite, is uh, Nights Like This. Nights like this I wish that raindrops would fall. Yes, I do. Oh. I I think it's mostly because my dad used to play it all the time. In the oh, really? Uh, yeah. So I, I think, and I think I, I heard that song before I even knew it was in the movie. So like. 
I think that's probably oh, my favorite. Nights like this, I wish raindrops would fall. Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. I also, even though you think that I look like I'm in high school, I do remember the TV show, The Parenthood. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, that that was came in the midst of this sort of, I guess what they they called like the, it wasn't a renaissance per se, but it was the height of black sitcoms in the 90s. What drew you to wanting to make like a family sitcom like that after doing all those feature films? And I know you said at that at one point you didn't want to do TV, you wanted to do movies. So what brought you back to TV? Well, you know, it was Bill Cosby. Mr. Cosby had reached out to me and we had a conversation about images and people of color and um, raising a generation of kids with your sitcom. Mm. That was my Trojan horse. So one part was like, oh, I don't really want to do television. And another part was like, you know what? This could be really cool because the life lessons that you're teaching on the show will apply to all these kids that are watching. And sure enough, I have raised a generation of kids that will go, you were my dad. You were Mr. Peterson. You know, mm-hmm. I was Zaria. I was Cece. I was, you know, Nicholas, you know. Yeah. So um, so that was part of the dance. Yeah. And the, you were in, were you mostly in the writer's room as well in addition to starting yeah. and directing? I was directing, acting. I'd leave the actors and I'd go to the writer's room you know, it was it was a dance. I was an executive producer, so I, you know, yeah, I was wearing five caps. Yeah, and you 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 bounce a lot between different genres. Yes, um, you've done musicals. You did Carmen a Hip Hopera, mm-hmm. obviously Five Heartbeats, but you've also done some dramas like Holiday Heart. What draws you to a script? Are you more attracted to comedy? Like, especially now in your later career, like, mm-hmm. are you more drawn to comedy or are you more drawn to to dramas? Um, or is it just whatever the project? If it it's whatever you. you know. It's whatever speaks to me. If something really funny, like uh, I'm doing the documentary now, and then there's an idea that I have for a television series that uh, is gospel music. Then there's one that's dramatic. Then there's uh, I have the rights to the Nicholas Brothers estate, and so I oh. want to do something with the Nicholas Brothers. Interesting. Um, one of Her- was it Harold or one of them was in the Five Heartbeats. Harold Nicholas was Harold in the Five Nicholas. Heartbeats. Right. So it, it's whatever speaks to me because when you look at um, my body of work, I'm I'm somebody that never wanted to be in a box. So if you look at my work, you go like, okay, he's Meteor Man, but then he did Holiday Heart, then he did uh, In the Hive, right. and that's really dramatic. But then Partners in Crime, he's silly and he's crazy and he's kooky and. You know, but I just think to me, uh, a real artist should have a range. Mm. You know, I never wanted to be like, oh, he's the funny guy or no, he's very serious. You know, it's like, you no, know, whatever hits me. Certain days, it's like life. Some days you want to cry. Certain days you just want to laugh. Yeah. And certain days you want to do both. So for me, as I create on my canvas, I'm always looking to challenge myself. And the only other thing that I'm working on right now is a one man show about my life. And it's kind of like the journey of Robert, you know, the journey of when I was a kid and how I got started in this industry. And it's kind of, you know, being a performer, uh, it's a very unique story of this kid that, you know, loves television and finds his way to Hollywood. Is there any piece of advice that you wish you had gotten when you were first starting out? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) this brother is deep this brother is deep I thought we were about to go somewhere (laughs) 
I just want to see how serious you were. You were there like she went with me, audience. You should have seen it. You should have seen it. If it was worth the price of admission, we were in a place. Uh, no, you, you said, "Is there what was the question?" Is there any piece of advice that you wish you had gotten when you were first starting out? Just something you had known about the business before you? No, I, I think you, you know. I think the ride. Once you accept the ride, you accept everything that comes along with the ride. And I don't, you know, there's no cheat sheet that you go like, oh, I wish somebody would have told me this. You know, like words. The only thing that I would say to anybody out there that's like listening and it wants to have a career in this business is that, you know, part of it is you got to watch your words. Whatever you say it's going to be, it's going to be. If you say, ah, I'm not going to make it, you're not going to make it. If you say, you know, I'm going to reach for the stars, you know, and I'm, I'm going to have a television show, you will. But I think a lot of times people are so afraid of their words and they will curse themselves, but they won't, you know, bless themselves. Right. So they will say, you know, oh, they're going to go for that other person today. And I learned early on, you got to watch your words. If you watch your words... Because when people look and they go like, are you lucky? No, no. I, I, you know, are you, were you surprised by the success of Hollywood Shuffle? Not really, because I felt it was good. I felt in my spirit I had done everything I was supposed to do. And with the five heartbeats, you know, when the movie died at the box office and I thought, you know, I said, well, it's still really good. And then all of a sudden, you know, like over a million, a hundred million clips have been shared on that film, you know, so I think that. The only thing that I always say to anyone is watch your words. So you mentioned uh, Parenthood was kind of born out of uh, talking with Bill Cosby. Right. And I know you were supposed to, um, or you did film the special, the Bill Cosby 77, mm -hmm. um, before it was canceled due to the, uh, or Netflix decided not to release it because of the, the allegations against him. What allegations? <laughs> uh, anyway. Yes. Well, I'm just curious as to like what you think... Cosby's where do you how do you see Cosby's legacy as it stands now you know what um Mr. Cosby's always been like a father to me so it's it really hurts my heart because um all sides of it is it's 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 sad on all sides you know it's sad for him his wife uh sad for those women you know and um you know, I was not there. I don't know what happened, but it doesn't look good and it doesn't feel good. And when I watch all this stuff, there's a lot of pain, mm. you know, and so I just pray that uh, a healing happens for all involved. Mm. And I actually spoke with you um, for the black film canon on Slate, and we asked you as well as a bunch of other filmmakers and scholars about what their like five favorite films were by black filmmakers. Um, you mentioned Creed. You were a big fan of Creed, Ryan yes. Coogler's Creed. Uh -huh. But is there anyone else besides him who's making films right now, a black filmmaker who you are just totally blown away by, really impressed by? Or you think they have a lot of potential as a filmmaker? Let me see. Who else would I put in that category? Oh, what is the filmmaker who did Bessie? Oh, Dee Reese. I like her. She's great. I like her. I thought Bessie was well made. I yeah. thought that was well. I and I even said I saw her at some conference, and I, you know, I just said, "Wow, what an amazing, you know, artist you are, and you're just starting out." Yeah, you know, and she's amazing. She did great. She also did Pariah. Too, yes, which I didn't see that. I didn't oh, see that. I need to you see that. See it. Yeah, great. but she's she has a, a natural. You know, I was so I, I was so. Uh, Excited about her work once I saw Bessie. Yeah, Kim Kim Wayans is actually in, in Pariah, and she gives an 
amazing dramatic performance. Uh, wow. It's great. So wow. You should definitely check it out. I will check it out. <laughs> I will check it out. Um, so I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for this time. And just, you know, your questions and you're on top of your game. So what a blessing. Hey, that's all for today. Thanks so much for tuning into my very first episode. As we launch the podcast, we'll be coming to you bi-weekly, so look out for our next episode in two weeks. Please, if you liked this convo and want to hear more, rate us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Represent is produced by Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtig. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. And music is performed by San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Thank you.